This week, Mark takes us to the Twilight Zone. MC is tricked by the poor man's copyright, and Toby pitches his new script, House Party 4. All this, and we answer your questions. This is Plot Points Podcast. House Party 4! This is Mark Sevy. This is the Plot Points Podcast. I'm here in beautiful downtown Newport Beach, which is a total lie, but it's close. I'm with my co-host, Mary Claire Anderson. Say hello, Mary Claire. Hi. <laughs> and uh, our uh, engineer slash producer slash um, all-around good guy, Toby Walwork. Did you want to say hello, Toby? Hello, Toby. Mm-hmm. We've had a couple weeks to absorb, and um, we truly do appreciate the support and the love and the suggestions. As always, you can put in comments. Uh, there's a podcast website. It's www.plotpoints.com. There's phone numbers on that website that you can call in and ask a question or leave a comment. And again, we do appreciate any feedback that we can get. We talked about adding a segment uh, to the podcast called What Are We Writing or What Are We Doing in Writing, which I think is a, a great idea. I'm not going to, I didn't think of it, but somebody else did, but I still think it's a great idea. I usually think my ideas are the best ideas, but um, so I don't know if I, if you guys want me to start it off or you want to start it off, but um, for me, it's been a pretty productive week. I did 30 pages of, a, of uh, a script work. Unfortunately, there were 10 pages of three different projects, and none of which I'm uh, sure I'm going to keep, which is a process that I'm okay with. I know a lot of writers want to write and start writing and don't stop. But if you run across a, a, a situation where you're jammed, or you're sure your script won't work out, I don't think there's anything wrong with just throwing it aside and moving on to something else. Um, I'm pretty focused when I'm writing, and I know when something's going to work. So if I get to page 10 or page 15 and I find myself really slowing down or starting to look ahead and think, what am I going to do with this script? I'm perfectly willing to put it aside and, and start writing again. And that's actually what I did with this last, uh, this last couple of weeks. So uh, the pages I wrote, I love them. I think they're great, but I'm not sure that they go anywhere, and I'm not sure I'm going to continue them. Uh, so, so that was for me a uh, just one of my experiences this week in writing. And I've done a lot of writing. I actually do, did a lot of writing for this podcast, which kind of um, felt really good too, because I wrote about uh, 17 or 20 pages of uh, of uh, notes for this podcast. So, anyway, that was my week or my couple weeks. Um, Mary Claire, what are you doing? I'm working on a script right now. I'm pretty notorious for starting scripts and never finishing them and starting about, you know, maybe the first 10 pages and then not sure totally what story I'm trying to tell, what my characters want, where to go with this. And so I'll start something new. Um, you know, writing doesn't just, it's not something that just pours out of me. You know, my process is difficult and pretty rigorous and I'm hard on myself and I hold myself to high standards. So for this particular script, script. I'm I'm struggling. You know, I'm in sort of the initial stages of setting up the characters, their goals. And I think I have a somewhat of a compelling, you know, concept. The tone is maybe right, but then all the other factors like stakes, what my ca- characters want, and then factoring in the structure to it, you know, it's gotten to be a little bit garbled. So I've had to take a step back and really try to understand, you know, how my characters are informing these pages and, uh, and putting just pen to paper. Uh, but my process is Again, difficult. <laughs> and I, I don't know if this will help. It might have been mentioned already um, in class, but maybe you should look at your villain mm-hmm. and and make sure that your villain's uh, agenda is in place because nothing really happens without a villain. And uh, as I'm thinking about the two or three things that I did this week, um, it's pretty obvious that my villains are 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 amorphous. That they they're not as concrete as they could be. So. I'm going to go back. I'm going to take my own advice and go back and look at that and see if there's a better villain to be had. And if that's – because it is my firm belief that nothing happens in a script without a good villain. Mm -hmm. Tobe? 
Okay, well, I, first of all, I, I definitely feel like I got caught for not doing my homework. <laughs> I haven't been writing, but uh, in my defense, it, this is a, a very busy time at work, uh, which is no kind of defense. But uh, it, it did bring up an interesting point I kind of like to go back to and, and get me out of trouble as quickly as possible. You're talking about how you're very comfortable writing things and then just putting them in a drawer. Absolutely. Um, I, I think especially for listeners that are, are not uh, the, the, the proud author of, of, of let's, let's just embarrass you, 19 <laughs> sold scripts? 19 sold, 30, no, 30 sold. 30 sold. 19 produced. 19 produced. Hundreds and hundreds Hundreds written. and hundreds written. So yeah. if someone's out there and they've got a, a drawer with 30-page orphans, um, there's, there's no sin. There's nothing wrong with that. No, you know, not from my perspective. Um, writing never came easy for me in the beginning, but I, because I was put in, thrown into a crucible pretty quickly, um, I learned how to produce quickly and hopefully well. So I've, over the years, I've started a lot of things that I just couldn't finish, and I've gone back and finished some of them. A couple of them I'm very proud of. But uh, those, I call them those 30-page wonders or those 30-page miracles that are on my computer. I have hundreds of them. I don't even know how many. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Because sometimes, you, you know, sometimes uh, this happens in class. Somebody, somebody will bring up a suggestion for somebody and they will go, oh, that's a great idea. Then that person goes home and writes that, and it's the worst idea in the world. <laughs> so it sounds good sometimes in your head, and whatever you got in your head doesn't always make it to the paper. And so you just have to accept that. That's part of your process. I, I kind of analogize it to, um, we're watching the, you know, well, I am the NBA playoffs right now. And some players have terrible games. And they just go out there, they're, they're world-class athletes, and they just have terrible games. But they shake it off, and they, they know there's another game to be played. There's another opportunity to be, to be a star. And that's what they do when they go out there, and they just do it. So putting aside anything that doesn't work doesn't bother me in, in the least, in the very least. And, yeah, it's work, and I understand that, you know, you, that you, you just, gee, I just put in five hours or six hours or ten days on this. But if it's, if it's going to cause you to, to have a writer's block, to have a stoppage, that's not going to serve you. Um, you just need to push through that, start something else. Um, as always, I really feel like a workshop is the best place to go and, and expose your work to other people. And sometimes some great ideas come out of those workshops that really do work. And as far as you not writing, I know why you're not writing, and it's a sin. But mm -hmm. I know that uh, there's something called rent and, um, you know, toys that you like. Um, so, but I hope you, excuse me, hope you do get back to writing as soon as, as, soon as possible. You're a terrific writer. Thank you. You're Thanks. welcome. Well, and, and uh, I mean, we can just keep talking about how great I am. But I was <laughs> going to ask, Mary Claire, you're in Mark's workshop currently. Mm -hmm. Does mm -hmm. that make it easier for you to write, knowing that you've got a deadline? Because now, Mark, you're a professional screenwriter. It's your job. So yep. you write, you go to work every day. Like every somebody day. that works in a coffee shop or a office. I walk down the hallway. I go from my bedroom to the kitchen to my <laughs> office, and it's all within a couple hundred feet of each other. <laughs> but for people that are trying to balance writing with you know, their, their day job, mm -hmm. um, uh, how do you make it work? Yeah, I mean, I think yes and no in terms of having a deadline. Like there are weeks that will maybe go by that I haven't had the time or the energy to focus sort of on process. And I'll be like, I need to get some pages in. Like people haven't seen pages and I don't want to be publicly shamed again in class <laughs> for not having written anything. And so there will be those nights or weekends where I'll really sit down and uh, and put in, yeah, the work um, to get some some pages in front of people. Um, so that part's helpful. But then there, yeah, I mean, there are times where it's sort of like, I know my process and I know, again, the standards that I hold myself to. And if I don't think that these pages are ready for eyes or if I know they have problems that need to be fixed, like there are times I won't put them in front of people. But I mean, the workshop is so useful for that on the flip side as well. I mean, people can point out those problems and help you fix them, you know, help you sort of have an open dialogue about why, you know, this character isn't working or if this concept isn't connecting, you know, with an audience or why the tone is off. And so um, I, I'm, I feel like I'm a pretty self-aware writer. So there, there are times where I'm like, I know there are there are significant problems, but I don't know how to fix them. And so that's that's what the, the, the workshop is, is so good for. And to to that point, I would say that I really admire you being critical and that's a that's a great quality of who you are and who Toby is also, mm -hmm. um, but there is critical and there's hypercritical. I know. And when you cross that line, you end up hurting yourself. Mm -hmm. If you wrote more 
and just put your whatever you consider garbage out there, you would be less likely to put that garbage out next time because you would be self-editing yourself. Mm -hmm. As it sits now, you're in your head, sitting at home, thinking, I can't post this, I can't write this, I can't do this, and you're already defeating defeating yourself. So, I'm self-aware about that as well. Okay. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're um, also too a, smart um, for your own damn good. You know, get, start putting crap out. What the hell? Who cares? I know. It's I mean, just it's, it's getting in the habit of writing every day as well. I mean, that's just how you get better. And so there are times, yeah, where I'm sort of like, I know this isn't good, so I'm going to stop. And that's not the right attitude, no, you know, it when it comes to it perfecting isn't. your craft. So, so perhaps if I can kind of wrap this up, for uh, an aspiring writer, aspiring screenwriter or writer of any kind that might be listening, um, apart from obviously doing the work making it, you know, scheduling it, finding time for it, you think it's really important to make sure people are reading your work and you're reading their work. You believe that creates Absolutely. a better writer. Yeah, my, my classes at Irvine Valley College have been ongoing for 20-some years, and um, I've always felt that the only way to learn how to be a better writer is to write. Mm -hmm. And part of that process is getting your ass in a workshop where you're exposing your work, and, and it's a it's not always a benign environment. Let's face it, we don't like our work to be criticized, but there's always a, something to be gleaned from it. There's always a, a, a never-changing array of attitudes. And it's surprising how I used to, when I did this and I did workshops, I would bring my work in thinking, I'm going to kill them this, this time. <laughs> and they would ravage me. They would tear me That's to bits. You right down. And then I would turn in something and say, this is going to get, I'm going to get my ass chewed. And it would, people go, wow, this is really good. Mm -hmm. So that's a very frustrating part of it, but it is a part of it. And the workshop can be invaluable in helping you define your boundaries as a writer. So I guess the advice would be for any of our uh, aspiring uh, screenwriters out there that if they want to find out more about workshops or the classes that Mark offers, they can go to Plot Points. Uh, there's an opportunity there where they can ask Mark any question they have about screenwriting, or they can go to, Mark, help me out here, 123getsmart.com. 123getsmart.com, which is Irvine Valley College's webpage for adult education, um, or um, marksevy.com. Try to contact Mark through his own website, mm -hmm. marksevy.com. All right, Mark, you want to tell us about something else? Yeah, um, we don't have an interview this week. Um, because I wanted to talk about um, a writer who I admire, and I'm just going to get right into it. You're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. So goes one of the iconic monologues in television history by TV pioneer Rod Serling, who wrote, directed, produced, and acted in the series The Twilight Zone. Among the many resources I tapped for this article was the American Masters documentary called Submitted for Your Approval. I recommend it. It opens in an operating theater, tense moments all of the Twilight Zone, black and white, men and women in masks in tight shots, eyes darting. Actress Lee Grant's voice says, Submitted for Your Approval. The man in cardiac crisis is Mr. Rod Serling, writer, producer, and agent provocateur of a certain electronic medium he helped create, and which, by way of thanks, kindly ushered him out the door. But that is of no particular concern of his at this moment, because it's Tuesday, June 28, 1975, and thanks to a million cigarettes and a heart with its own flair for the dramatic, Mr. Serling is on the cutting edge of infinity. Mr. Rod Serling, who once remarked that he'd like to be remembered as a writer, is about to get his wish during a short stay in a small town called Yesterday, found on any map in the Twilight Zone. The American Masters documentary starts with that excellent voiceover and rolls into a sometimes harsh but always contemplative exam examination of a true writer's writer, someone who was as tortured by his work as much as he was celebrated for it, who loved success but hated the hypocrisy he knew he participated in as part of that success. He said, writing is a demanding profession and a selfish one, and because it is selfish and demanding, because it is compulsive and exacting, I didn't embrace it, I succumbed to it. My diet consisted chiefly of black coffee and fingernails, which spoke to both his constant self-doubt and the crushing deadlines he faced. That obsession for perfection would eventually kill him, but what a ride he had. Rod Serling was one of the most prolific writers in history. His biography is almost too big for any single sit sitting. He wrote so much that it's nearly impossible to list all the companies he wrote for. He's also one of the most celebrated writers, earning four Emmys, a Hugo, which is the science fiction 
um, literary equivalent of an Emmy, a Writers Guild Award for children's programming, of all things, a Peabody, and many more awards. Serling was active in politics, both on and off the screen, and helped form television industry standards. He was known as the angry young man of Hollywood, clashing with television executives and sponsors over a wide range of issues, including censorship, racism, and war. More on that a little later. On a personal note, he was a small man. He was five foot four, five foot five. His size kept him out of football, but he became a paratrooper during World War II in the Philippines. He was transferred to the 511th Demolition Platoon, platoon nicknamed the Death Squad, for its high casualty rate. He was a boxer, a flyweight, who had his nose broken on numerous occasions. He had a bad knee. His wife said he would constantly fall because it would buckle underneath him. And he attended, after the war, he attended Antioch Radio, uh, Radio, uh, Antioch College at Radio Station, and he wrote and directed and acted in many of the programs there. In fact, one year he wrote the station's entire slate. For extra money in his college years, Serling worked part-time testing parachutes for the United States Army Air Forces. I get this. He, he got $50 for each successful jump and had once been paid $500, half before and half if he survived, for a particularly hazardous test. In one instance, he earned $1,000 for testing a jet ejection seat that had killed the previous three testers. This was man of obvious courage or stupidity. Serling volunteered at WNYC in New York as an actor and a writer in the summer of 1946. He said, I learned time writing for a medium that is measured in seconds. This was a crucible for him, This a lot of these radio shows that he did at Antioch. He won his first accolade as a writer when, he set, when a script he wrote for the radio, To Live a Dream, won a contest. He signed with an agent and sold nothing for a year. He said of that first sale that it was a high point of his career, that he didn't think anything equaled that feeling. That's the one that comes with magic, he said, which is sad to me because it implies that the writing he did after that lacked any sort of thrills, which I find hard to believe since he was so celebrated. But it's clear he truly was so tortured he couldn't always enjoy his successes. TV was just starting, mostly in New York. Serling was perfect for it. He was good and fast and had a relentless drive. Live dramas, dramas shot live on stage, were just beginning to emerge as a way for TV to move beyond the cheap quiz shows and crime dramas. These were written by such notables as Patty Chayefsky, Reginald Rose, and Abby Mann. That's where the phrase television playwright or teleplay came from. They were literally plays that were filmed for television, live, each week. Rod Serling was emerging quickly in that new group of writers. His script for Patterns was his first huge success. It was the first and only production to be rerun by audience demand. It also won him his first Emmy and a Peabody Award. It was a horribly difficult piece to watch if you watch it. It's dealt with an older man being replaced by a younger man, the unconscionable circle of life in business and the world. He said, I was writing about the values of a society that places so much stock in success and has so little preoccupation with morality once success has been obtained. This is not the morality of good, or good and evil. This is, the morality, this is morality's shady side of the street. And in many ways, this shade was Serling's metier. Serling became an overnight success. It propelled him into the stratosphere of writers. He wrote several more live television scripts, and then he, he ended up moving to, um, the, to Hollywood because the live uh, broadcast started to go away. But before he did that, he wrote Requiem for a Heavyweight, which is an amazing film uh, based on his boxing ex experiences that won him an Emmy. And he did another one called The Comedian that won him his third Emmy. But let's flash forward um, to 1956 in L.A. Um, eventually, the live playhouse in New York died and Serling went west. He didn't love Hollywood. He said, Hollywood's a great place to live if you're a grapefruit. He was highly critical of the lack of culture, the posturing, even as he brought himself into the, bought into the trappings of a star himself. He had the house, the car, the boat. He surrounded himself with his success as a writer and at the same time railed against it, thoroughly understanding his hypocrisy. But in the greatest tradition of writers, Serling tried to exercise his demons by writing about them in The Velvet Alley. His fall into the Hollywood rat trap was semi-autobiographical and unblinkingly brutal. From Velvet Alley, this, this passage. Here's the trap. They offer you a great deal of money for what you do. Your lifestyle gradually rises to a point where you now need that money. And then they threaten to take it away. And then they own you. I read something very similar about David Patrick Shandley after he did Moonstruck. Um, he, he claimed he lived in a small apartment so they couldn't own him. Um, eventually they did. Many, um, 
Oh, I'm sorry. Then came the show that was to define him forever, The Twilight Zone, in 1959, which actually had a precursor in an idea Serling had about a young boy and girl who traveled by country, the country by train and had different stories each week. Many of the Twilight Zone episodes are considered television's best all time because Serling thought that a science fictional setting with robots, aliens, and other supernatural occurrences would give him more freedom and less interference. He was right. He could take on the issues that hamstrung him in normal TV writing. His script, The Time Element, was Serling's 1957 pilot pitch for his show. It was a time travel adventure about a man who travels back to Honolulu in 1941 and unsuccessfully tries to warn everybody about Pearl Harbor. The script pilot was rejected, but eventually made its way to be produced as an episode of Desilu Playhouse in 1958. That production was a huge success and opened the door to the Twilight Zone in 1959. The first episode was inspired when Serling walked through the back lot of an empty studio. If you've ever been on a back lot of an empty studio, this is exactly how it is. It's very creepy. Houses, streets, street lamps, shrubs, but no people. That became the Earl Holloman episode called Where Is Everybody? Holloman searches and can't find, any, can't find anybody in the empty town, although there's coffee steaming, cigarettes burning, water running, and doors closing. And of course, in what was to be the zone's signature coda, it had a sci-fi twist ending. With The Twilight Zone, Serling could explore anything, anywhere, in any time. He could do the social and moral tales he wanted. He could inform, preach, lecture, teach, something he also felt television should be about. Entertainment, yes, but teaching lessons and morals, and even, even bigger, yes. Gene Roddenberry did the same thing years later in Star Trek. Star Trek wasn't really dry wagon train in outer space, as it widely believed. Like Serling, Roddenberry could examine social issues on the Enterprise that he couldn't on Earth. He aped Serling in a way, in this way, and created an equally enduring legacy. Uh, one of the, the first interracial kiss on television was Star Trek, and it was because Roddenberry followed Serling's example. Serling made the Twilight Zone his bully pulpit. The opening to Monsters Are Due on Main Street, Maple Street, shows the kind of moral tale that Serling so loved. The tools of conquest, uh, the opening goes, do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, and prejudices. And for the record, prejudices can kill. Serling felt prejudice was the biggest sin mankind committed. Here was Sterling writing large across the small screen, his own private medium. Don't forget that this was a time just after Joseph McCarthy and the blacklist. Serling's friends were dragged in front of McCarthy's Committee on Communism. The episode on Maple Street ends with the aliens saying that the townspeople have picked the most dangerous enemy they could find to blame, themselves. He was writing about aliens, but he meant McCarthyism. The Eye of the Beholder was another great example of Serling's morality telling, but it wasn't just about beauty, it was about conformity, that idea we're seeking to look the same, sound the same, act the same. There's a leader in a vaguely Russian code on TV talking about singular purpose, preaching that conformity if you watch it. On and on, the morals came in the form of mystery, suspense, and science fiction. Out of the 156 scripts in five seasons, Serling wrote 92. That's 60% of the Twilight Zone. The others were written by such luminaries that Serling respected, like Ray Bradbury, who adopted, adapted his short story, I Sing the Body Electric, Charles Beaumont, who did The Howling Man, which still is the most disturbing Twilight Zone I've ever seen, and Richard Matheson, who wrote The Invaders with Agnes Moorhead and Nightmare at 20,000 Feet with William Shatner, with the creature on the wing. There's an odd note to this, and uh, it's about Richard Matheson. They had a great relationship, but according to Matheson, only Serling could use the word God in his teleplays. It was off limits to the rest of the writing team. I used to get ticked off at Rod because he could put God in all his scripts, Matheson said. If I did it, they'd cross it out. Matheson never asked, and he was never told the reason behind the rule. Some of the Twilight Zone scripts tore your heart out like Nothing in the Dark, which featured a young Robert Redford trying to convince a fearful elderly woman it's okay to let go, to die. Here was a young man like Serling in his 30s, writing about the paralyzing fear of death with insight that belied his years. And some of the episodes just scared the shit out of you, like The Hitchhiker with Inger Stevens, To Serve Man, which was a cookbook, It's a Good Life, which is the Billy Mummy sending people to the cornfield, and the aforementioned Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. The Twilight Zone was an instant success. Serling became even more famous than he could have imagined. He appeared in interviews and variety shows. People recognized him on the street at a time where nobody recognized any writers or most stars and producers, for that matter. What's wonderful about Serling is even as he became famous and successful, 
and was simultaneously going through the self-hate on becoming Hollywoodized, feeding the ego he felt was out of control like some spotlight junkie. His self-examination and inner honesty forced him to put those feelings down on paper and flagellate himself with his own words. Walking distance was one result. Every once in a while, he had to go home to that small town where he was born to touch the values he felt he had lost, at least in his mind. He said he felt disconnected from himself, who he is, and he wrote about it brilliantly. The genius of the Twilight Zone is that it really was a place of mind, a place to go and live and dream and be scared and cry and anything else you needed to do. And Serling was definitely our host, the person saying, come on, it's okay. I've been there and back, and it's better to face it all than to cower in darkness. Serling wrote in Universal Themes. Someone coined the phrase for his work as wisdom fiction to describe it, which I think is great. He wrote about his life with his unique lens, but it reflected us all and still does. Soldiers, aliens, death, second chances, hope, fear, anger, bitterness. He lived it all and put it all out there for us to experience with them. And this should be true of all writers. If we're not writing from a place of personal anger, fear, pain, joy, learning, we're not writing. We're just putting words on a page. Sterling had PTSD from his war experiences, but he did therapy through his writing. If you listen to his interviews or read his biography and then watch the episodes he wrote, you can see him reflected directly in everything he was. He poured himself out onto the page and wrung out every bit of self-examination he could muster. Eventually, that well ran dry. He began to feel drained of ideas. They no longer came rushing to him like a pack of enthusiastic puppies. The Twilight Zone ran for five years. It was canceled three times and renewed twice, and Serling said he was happy to walk away from it when it was finally ended. He was dry. Although he continued, Serling never achieved the measure of success he did with the show that defined him. His feature films were less than spectacular, except for the drama Seven Days in May and the original Planet of the Apes, which he listed, he's listed as a co-writer. None were all that notable. Night Gallery was not his work. He was just a host. He retired to Ithaca, New York, to a lake house, and he taught at Ithaca College for a time. Wouldn't that have been great to take a class from Rod Serling? I mean, wow. The saddest thing to me about Serling's life is that this genius, this pioneer, because he was so brutally honest with himself, never felt like he'd done enough. He actually puts that theme in a lot of his work, including a pitch for the angels, in which a man prevents death from taking a little girl. At the end, the man is satisfied to go with death because he's done something worthwhile for once. I hope, somehow... When Serling was lying on that table in the hospital and his heart was beating out of his chest, squeezing the life out of him, he had at least a moment of Twilight Zone prescience, a peace in the understanding that he'd moved generations of people and writers, that he'd set standards for other writers and for television that are continually maintained even decades later, because that is certainly true about me, about him for me. Rod Serling is a personal hero of mine. I admire him for his work ethic, his persistence of vision, his lack of ego when it came to his work, the ability to always be self-critical, his steadfast adherence to his principles, but paired with the wisdom to compromise when he had to, and for his unerring self-awareness. Remember that the next time you see a Twilight Zone episode, you're not just watching a cautionary tale. You're peering directly into the soul of Rod Serling, master storyteller. He truly lives on in his work to change the face of the world via a small screen, but with words and ideas as large or larger than this universe. Rod Serling was 50 years old when he died. He was a writer. Your next stop, The Twilight Zone. Points podcast. We're going to segue now into a few questions from our listeners. And if you ever have a question for Mark or any of us or want to be on the podcast, call us at 919 Scripts and leave a question about scripts or film, and we'll play your voicemail on air. Um, but we'll start with a few that we have here. Uh, Mark, you ready? I am. Don't forget the website, plotpoints.com. So, yeah. So, first question, should I use the Copyright Office or the Writers Guild to register my work? Well, one is... The Copyright Office is the United States government. It's $35, and I, I want to say that it's that the copyright is longer. The Writers Guild is um, 25 if you're uh, – no, I'm sorry, 20 if you're not a member, 10 if you're a member. You don't have to be a member to register your script. It's I still think it's good for five years. So I used to use the Writers Guild exclusively – but I've uh, recently been using the Copyright Office because they, they instituted an online 
registration procedure, which they didn't have before. You actually had to send the physical script or something into the copyright office. Either, either choice is good. Just remember the Writers Guild is only five years and they don't send you renewal notices, which is kind of a, a pain. Uh, but they do send you a certificate, which the Copyright Office does not. So m you can do either one. I'm personally using the Copyright Office these days because it's only a couple more bucks, and I like the idea of the copyright lasting longer. Can, can I just interject, though? What, what, what does that get me as a screenwriter if I do it? Like, it's $35, it's registered in the Copyright Office, but what does that really mean? So if somebody, if you think somebody stole your script, it allows you to... Um, to prove that you wrote it at a certain date. It basically just says, I own this material. I wrote it on, let's say you register it today. Today's March, May 20th, right? So if somebody uh, sells a script and their copyright is May 25th, then I had the idea before them or I registered it before them. And from a legal standpoint, I have it's my script and not theirs. Proving it is the problem. Anytime you say somebody stole my script, proving it is the problem. And it has to be an existing script. I can't just say uh, um, you can copyright they anything. Make House Party Four, and then just. Well, I mean, you check. can do that. Sure, you can copyright that, but that's not going to get you much in court. If you write an entire treatment for for House Party Four, which would you know, you should get hit hit yep. that, Toby. I think that's I think a good idea ready. for you. I think America's ready. Um, I think we're ready. <laughs> if you if you if you write an entire treatment, then you have some wherewithal to say, I came up with the concept, here's my treatment of it, here's what I said should happen. Somebody just took my treatment and wrote it into a script. And so but Honestly, guys, I'm going to tell you right now, I've been ripped off four or five times at least in this business. I mean, entire projects stolen, and I've never sued anybody because it's a small town. And if you do get known for litigation, you're going to find it hard to get a, a job anywhere because people are going to be afraid you're litigious and you're going to, you're going to sue them. So, so copyright it, but um, only take advantage of it if you absolutely have to prove. Like if, I, if somebody stole my script and it ended up being a, a half a billion dollar success, I might consider going after them. But if it's just something like the stuff that was stolen from me, which ended up being you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, I would, it's not worth it. Well, what about, I've heard of the poor man's copyright, is yeah. that a thing? <laughs> That's a great, yeah, okay, so the poor man's copyright is where you take your material, you put it in an envelope, you seal it with whatever device you want, you can use a vacuum seal, you can use uh, duct tape, you can use Gorilla Glue, and then you take it to the post office, you send it to yourself, registered mail, so you prove mm -hmm. that it has a postmark on it and a registered mail receipt, and then you take that to court and the, the judge laughs you out of the court because there is no way that you can prove that somebody didn't tamper with that <laughs> after they sent it uh, to you. So the poor man's copyright, I don't care. I had an attorney tell me the poor man's copyright was okay. It's absolutely the biggest piece of horseshit you're ever going to hear. You cannot use that, that system to register anything, period. So if, if I understand correctly, the, the, the protection that the Writers Guild or the Copyright Offices, is that they're a third, they're a third party, right. a, a trustworthy authority that says it was on this day, uh, house party for uh, treatment, and uh, um, but if you're just mailing it to yourself, obviously you're, you're you you have a uh, you have a stake in it. so yeah. you can't be considered. Uh, well, if you mail it to anyone, you have a stake in it because that can be open. I don't care how well you seal something; it can be tampered with. There's no guarantees that that wasn't steamed open or or somehow opened by a secret method. Yeah, the Writers Guild takes your script down into a vault that's 16 floors beneath Hollywood at on, at Third, and they put it. Per, no, they don't do any of that, but they they do timestamp it and date stamp it. But they don't read it, right? There's, no. They, there's no one at no. the Writers Guild that says, "Oh yeah, he came up with this idea." No. They just can pull your script off your say so. Right. Okay. Same with the Copyright Office. The Copyright Office doesn't say that that was in the script. It just says we received this, and this is this is the file that we have on that. So. So don't use the poor man's copyright to answer yeah, your Matt question. Yeah, whoever suggested that. <laughs> it it doesn't cost that much to register. It does not cost that much. I just a stamp. So I, just, I just went ahead and put it through my – I put it in my mailbox but took a picture of me taking the mail out of the mailbox. And uh, that, how's party four? That should, that, should, that should do. I'm sure that's fine. Just make, make sure you take a selfie. This holiday season, how's party four? <laughs> okay. Any other questions there, MC? Actually – I have a question. Uh-oh. Uh, I had a question. Uh, I know that a, a, lot of your, uh, a lot of your work has been for the Sci-Fi Channel. You've done a lot of 
monstery uh, monstery uh, I love that word yes a, a word I use with surety <laughs> is the word monstery um, but I, I was curious like I, I we get a lot of entertainment from different places uh, I'm, I'm a fan of, of uh, the sci-fi channels product what is the sci-fi channel like as an organization to work for okay so first the first way to answer that is you don't work for Sci-Fi Channel uh, as in features. Maybe their their original material that's done their it used to be that their original television material was done here in L.A. and their their movies were done in New York. And so, in order to do a film, you have to go with a production a production company that they've worked with in the past has to hire you, and then you work for the production company, and the production company sells the final product to Sci-Fi Channel. So you don't actually work for Sci-Fi Channel. I I have a great relationship with Sci-Fi Channel, and yet I can't go directly to them and pitch a project because they don't work with writers directly on that kind of thing. So if you can find a producer, there are producers out there looking for concepts for Sci-Fi Channel. If you can find a producer who will take your script, they take it to Sci-Fi Channel, they pitch the project. If it becomes real, then they negotiate with Sci-Fi Channel. But Sci-Fi Channel doesn't pay you, the producer pays you. Uh, so you're working for, like for Pterodactyl, I work for American World Pictures. And for Arachnid, I worked for Fantastic Films. So they were production entities that made the films and then sold them to Sci-Fi Channel. Can I adapt a book, a comic book? What is the public domain? Wow, that's a huge question. So let me just talk about it briefly, and then we're going to have to do a show on that uh, in the future. But that's, that's a big topic. So you can adapt anything you want, but if you don't own the rights to it, you can't sell it. So you can take whatever comic book or book you love and write a script from it, but it's going to be just a, an exercise in futility, unless you can then get the rights to it. The flip side of that is the public domain. Uh, I believe all the Edgar Rice Burroughs material is in the public domain. Uh, all the Sherlock Holmes material is in public domain. So the people who are doing those uh, adaptations like Tarzan and uh, Sherlock Holmes don't pay for the rights because the copyright has expired on those and they, be, they are called, considered public domain. Now, the public domain in the United States is different from the public domain in Canada, is different from the public domain in the, in the rest of the world. So you want to check with your, you always want to check with an attorney on anything that's that's legal. We, I, I can't be responsible for the information that just floats around in my head because I don't know from a legal standpoint. But I know if I wanted to make a Sherlock Holmes film, I could easily do it without asking for the rights because that's public domain. And my favorite question, how do I get an agent? You don't. <laughs> Uh, forget it. Um, gosh, and that's even a bigger topic. We're going to do an agent show. Um, I'm going to try to get uh, a couple agents uh, on Skype or online. Um, the, it's really hard to get an agent because they always have more clients than they have work for those clients. And so they prioritize their clients by who's making them money. So if you're not making them money, they may take you on as a labor. I had an agent one time who loved my writing. Um, he, he got me work, but he also loved me as a writer. And that's, that's the best of all worlds because that means they're going to promote you for those assignments that, you, that, like, that come up uh, every once in a while. But it is very difficult to get an agent. An agent is one of those and, – and an agent has to be – a manager, you don't have to be any, have anything special to be a manager, but you do to be an agent. So an agent is a, is a legal entity, and they sign contracts – and they do uh, work for you, and you do you give them money, but getting one is almost impossible these days. You really uh, uh, the best I think the best solution is to enter a contest, have your work show up in the in a contest, and there's plenty of agents and managers and producers who watch those lists. So that's my that's my initial advice. But when we talk to an agent, we'll have maybe we'll have better insight into that. Well, if I can just interrupt for one moment, if there's any agents or managers out there and uh, you like what you hear about House Party 4, <laughs> please uh, get in touch with us through the website. Um, you know, 10% of it's yours. I've already got uh, a three-and-a-half-page treatment ready to go, and it, it pretty much writes itself. And, and you have the rights to it? Uh, well, I, I have a house and a part. I mean, it's public domain, right? It's a house. There's there, a party happened at the house. I, I don't see a conflict here. Okay. By the way, we're not legally bound on this podcast. So if you're going to decide to sue Toby, make sure you don't touch Mary Claire or I because we don't want any part of house party for. <laughs> Nobody needs to see that. <laughs> and you guys want to be at the party. Then. <laughs> 
All right. Now, Mary Claire, why don't we discuss this week in movie history? Yeah, this week in movie history. So there are a few films that we're going to discuss uh, this June 11th in 1982, the movie E.T., the extraterrestrial premiere, making it uh, its 35th anniversary of this year. So, of course, directed by Steven Spielberg and written by Melissa Matheson. Um, one of the highest grossing films of all time. Um, it actually overtook Star Wars uh, at that time period in terms of being the highest grossing. And it was a record it held until 1993 when it was beaten by another Spielberg film. Any guesses? 1993? Yeah. Oosh. Oh, totally Jurassic Park. Jurassic, or Rex. Yeah, it was Jurassic Park. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's a, it's a story of, you know, a lonely boy who befriends an extraterrestrial who's stranded on Earth, and he and his siblings help him return home. And it was a concept that was based on an imaginary friend of Steven Spielberg's when he was young that he sort of conjured up after his parents' divorce. You know, he was really, really lonely and looking for somebody to, I don't know, do weird things with him. Um, but Do um, weird things with him? <laughs> Did you see the movie? Uh, I was going to say that. That was, uh, that was Mary Claire. <laughs> attorneys listening? Mary yeah. Claire? I mean, going Mary on like, Claire. Claire. Uh, you know, great Mr. adventures. Mr. Spielberg, we love you. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it was written by, again, Melissa Matheson. They, uh, she wrote the first draft um, titled E.T. and Me in eight weeks and um, 107 pages, and that was the shooting script. Um, oh, so, wow. Um, so pretty crazy, and I think she has a real knack for you know telling that story from sort of a complicated child's view and uh, with a mind that's sort of fantastical. So, um, so yeah, so pretty historic. The other movie that I wanted to touch on, one of my favorite movies of the 90s, um, I have many favorite films of the 90s, um, but this is one of them, was Sister Act, which yeah. uh, premiered, in, premiered in 1992. Uh, so it's the 25th anniversary of uh, of that film, uh, a great musical comedy, um, and written by uh, a man named Paul Rudnick um, under a pseudonym uh, of Joseph Howard. And there's a really interesting story in terms of the pseudonym. Um, he after the film went through sort of draft after draft, didn't want his name attached to it. Um, which when I r learned that just via Wikipedia, um, I was, I, I slacked or texted Mark and was like, why that movie's so brilliant. Like, why wouldn't he want his name attached to it? And he was sort of like, um, you know, his, it was his initial concept. Um, uh, and ultimately after it went through so many different drafts, like a half a dozen different writers, including Carrie Fisher, uh, Nancy Myers, it didn't resemble his original script. And, um, and he is actually, he never even saw the film, but, you know, didn't really, you know, I guess understand maybe, you know, why it had gone through so many different, you know, reincarnations and, um, and didn't again, really, uh, see the point as it wasn't the original script that he wrote. So, um, but obviously a great success overall. He had nothing to do with Sister Act Two, Back in the Habit, which is also a really, really great film. Um, Absolutely <laughs> but, great musical. Um, but he has a credit line that, that reads, you know, based on the characters created by himself. But, um, but yeah, not uh, not the story that he originally set out to tell. And so uh, he just felt like it wasn't in his script anymore. It was out of his hands. Yeah, that's and that happens. Um, but a lot of the, the people you mentioned, Nancy Meyer and. Mm -hmm. uh, Carrie Fisher. Fisher are brilliant writers, and they probably were brought in to either make it more accessible to people or to make it funnier, mm -hmm. which I would love to have Carrie Fisher, well, not anymore, but I mean, either one of them would be great to have as a co-writer on something like that. That really... Yeah, script doctor. Yeah, mm -hmm. wow. Uh, that's really surprising that he railed against uh, being rewritten, because that's the way the business goes. You Once you sell that script, you have no control over it, period. There's a famous story about um, Pretty Pretty Woman where it was written by a guy that called it 3000 and mm -hmm. it was about a hooker who charged $3,000 a week for her services. It was not a romantic comedy. It was a much darker yeah. film. <laughs> and Gary Marshall turned it into a really charming romantic comedy. So mm -hmm. um, that's the way it goes. You get paid to go away. I had a quick question about that then. Um, have you been rewritten? Many times. Have you ever met someone that rewrote your stuff? Yes. What is that relationship like on both ends? Like, do you think that person is uncomfortable or is it, it's, I mean, it's a professional thing, so we, we shouldn't be frustrated by that, right? Well, the, the one script I wrote uh, was called DMZ, or one script, I'm sorry, I script doctored was called DMZ, which is the Demilitarizone, and it was written by a really wonderful man named Paul Siner, who couldn't, they couldn't sell the script because it was very much a very political script. It was split between Korea and, and Washington. And so a producer called me in to get it a greenlit by, I think it was, I can't 
can't remember the production company at the time. And I talked to Paul Seiner, and basically what I told him was I dumbed down your script, and he was okay with it. We had a great relationship because um, he, he understood that his version could not get sold, could not be produced the way it was. So my version did get sold. Unfortunately, my version did not get produced because I was then rewrote by, rewritten by another writer, um, and that was a, it was a very difficult production, but I've both written, rewritten people and been rewritten and it's, it's never easy, but it's always part of the process. You just accept that that's going to be done. I had, I've been rewritten by office staff, by directors, by actors, by, by the, the, you know, uh, producers by it just happens it's just part of the process railing against it is useless yeah i mean and that that's really what his main argument was that the process was just so arduous and that the script notes that he was getting you know the studio notes like dolores needs to be more sympathetic can she have a dog you know like different things where he was like this isn't the story that i'm trying to tell and so he couldn't take the process and ultimately you know quit uh and walked away so some of the notes are i mean belie credulity they're just stupid i i can remember several times where i my mouth just dropped open when I read them. But there's always a way around that by saying, great idea. Can we handle it this way? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to be political as a, as a writer in Hollywood. You just have to. So those are the movies for the week. Um, we'll have more, obviously, for next podcast. But uh, great selection, by the way. Sister Act. <laughs> yeah. The Sister Act, too. I love that song. Um, joyful, joyful. Joyful, joyful. Joyful, joyful. Lauren Hill performs it. Great. Amazing. Oh, it's an amazing song. Really, truly amazing. Those kids were going to be stars. Yes, anybody who did, anybody who had anything to do with Joyful Joy for Sister Act, please call us. <laughs> we want to fawn on you. Mm-hmm. It's like we're having a new segment. Let's recommend 20-year-old films <laughs> that were probably on Channel 5 this weekend. But actually, that brings us nicely to uh, what are we watching uh, or reading or looking forward to uh, in our movies and TV at the moment? And I will start with you. I'll start yeah. with me. I'll start with me. Okay. Recently, this week, I watched uh, on uh, Turner Classic Movies, so it's not a new film. I watched In the Heat of the Night, 1967. Mm. And I had seen it Wait, once Rod before. Steiger. Rod Steiger. Rod uh, Steiger. Sidney Poitier. Uh, Sidney Poitier, of course. Mr. Tibbs. Uh, a lot of other people that ended up showing up and stuff down the road. Lee Grant is in it uh-huh. uh, from, the, sure. uh, Rod, <laughs> from the Rod Serling documentary. Right. But... Um, it was an interesting movie, and, and I wanted to talk about it because uh, it was made in 1967, directed by Norman Jewison. At that time, Norman Jewison was like a very up-and-coming uh, director. It was edited by Hal Ashby, who in the 70s became a very up-and-coming director, sure. um, but, but lived a, a, a sort of a tragic life. But the film itself was interesting because uh, it is, it's very of the time, and it's very dated. Mm-hmm. The film was written by Sterling Siliphant. Mm. Sterling Siliphant. And uh, he historically was... An, uh, he, it's an adaptation. It was adapted from a book. The book came out in 1965, and there are changes. Now, the book, which I haven't read, but I read about, the book seems to be uh, one of those books you pick up at the airport on the way to and from someplace. But it just seems a little more uh, pulpy. But I think that was very clever because the film uh, really addresses a lot of uh, the powerful things that were happening in America at that time. Not as delicately, perhaps, as Rod Serling, who would, you know, let's make these people Martians. But this, it's like, it's, it's uh, civil rights was obviously a big thing in the 60s in the U.S. Uh, this is, of course, before we fixed racism. So, you know, that's one of the reasons it's, it's a very dated film. But... <coughs> One of, the th- one of the points I wanted to bring up about the film is the film is very dated because it is very much of 1967. But if you look at the uh, sort of like the story synopsis, you could make the film today. And, and one of the things that Sterling Siliphant did was um, where he deviates from the book, he makes it very specific to 1967 America, the South. They move it. In the book, it was set in uh, one of the Carolinas – the movie is set in Mississippi, and of course, in the mm-hmm. '60s, Mississippi was synonymous with a place where the civil rights movement. Yeah, was, Mississippi burning was. was yeah, a, I mean, it was a very hot topic. Excellent performances. Um, Rod Steiger, obviously, terrific who was actor. in uh, *Requiem for a Heavyweight*. Uh, apparently, because there was a nice little thing before the movie about uh, the movie uh, on on TCM, he was in character. 
he's a very method actor guy, mm-hmm. and he was in character the whole time. And he uh, played a he played a racist sheriff, right? He, well, he, racist is unfair, but yes, <laughs> he probably seemed kind of reasonable, or at least that's how they presented him. But it was the casual racism that the film addresses so successfully. The deputy that's that's really kind of the the, the difficult character. I think his name is uh, Deputy Woods. He is the most casual racist. He's the racist that doesn't think he is a racist mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. And it's all dealt with. With a pretty even keel, you know, they they don't play anybody too arch, and I thought they did a really good job for that. But one of the things I wanted to talk about the the screenwriter Sterling Silifant was that he was a prolific writer. He wrote books of his own. He did win an Academy Award in '67 for this. It's an adaptation. He was writing from the mid '50s through the mid '90s when he passed. Wow. So I mean, that's quite. And it was his second career because when he started out, he worked uh, he worked in PR, and he wow. actually worked in PR for Disney. And it was when the Walt Disney, uh, the TV show, the Mouseketeers show, in the 50s started. That's when he started writing for television. And then he did a lot of TV. He wrote for things like Playhouse 90. We talk about the, the start of, of live TV. Yeah, and that was part of, the, uh, part of that New York. Um, transition into yeah. screenwriting, transition into, he also wrote books of his own. So he was a very prolific guy, won an Academy Award, but is not necessarily remembered mm-hmm. As, as one of those big guys, but had you know quite a heck of a career. And like I said, you could make this movie today, but you know, maybe ironically because it is a 50-year-old story, but it's just it's just too hot right now to do it mm-hmm. unless we made unless we made them Martians and <laughs> people from Venus because it's it's. Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna invalidate that uh, that argument when I talk about what I'm what I want to talk about, which is dear white people. Okay. Well, thanks for just. So everything I said is a lie. Thank you, Mark. No, no, Thanks, no. Mark. I'm just saying. House Party Four. I'm just saying that the, the that's what I'm watching. I'm crushing on dear white people this week. But the dear white people takes racism on. They call it post racism, post racial America, or post racism America, which is the idea that since Obama became president, we've lost that. That well, it's it's so not true, and so I do, I do think you can make that and and. Dear White People, I'm not going to say much about it because we're running long, but Dear White People is brilliant. It is one of the best written shows I've ever seen. And it is just, it's, it's one of those shows that I freely admit I could never write. I don't care how good of a writer you are. This guy's voice is so unique. The, the, the concept is brilliant. The Dear White People is a radio program that the main character has. And she indicts basically white people for their racism or, or for their what did you call it, casual racism mm-hmm. or something like that, and that which still exists today. So if you really want to see a great, a great, great, um, I, I just think episodic uh, drama, it's Dear White People. And that's on Netflix. Yeah, that yes. right? that's how I'd find that. Okay, yes. Right. And that's funny because I'm watching another show on Netflix right now as well. I just finished the second season of Master of None. Um, and I really, really like that show as well. I mean, it's Great writing. The observations that they make and the overall general vibe are really, really carefully crafted. And I think it's a really conversation-worthy show as well, Um, really because it's a new view of the stories that are being told. You know, it's a show that's loosely based on Aziz Ansari and co-creator Alan Yang's um, own life experiences. And season one sort of follows them around, you know, 30-something struggling actors and serial daters trying to figure out kind of what they want out of life in New York City. And uh, and Aziz's character, Dev Shah, is, uh, you know, the son the secular son of, you know, assimilated Muslim immigrants and suffers, you know, from everything from employment discrimination and, you know, like racial awkwardness maybe in his dating life. And I think what makes the show so special is that it gives sort of center stage to stories that haven't been told before by people who you don't really see working in these kinds of positions. You know, there aren't many Asian or Indian American men running TV shows in America and disease. And Alan, you know, are really using the platform to sort of tell these stories, um, and they're telling is, something new. Sorry, is the Alan the Alan Yang character? Is he? I watched two episodes last night. Mm-hmm. Is he the a uh, friend? You may be referencing Arnold, oh. the big giant friend of his. No, 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 no. Uh, no, oh, no, oh, it's no, the Asian friend. The Asian yeah, friend. Yes, they took Alan their parents Yang. to dinner. Yes, yes, that's right. one of my favorite episodes. Okay. Um, when they're yeah. So he's a co-creator. He's the co-creator, oh, co-writer. Yes. Yeah, so they write the, the series themselves. They have a writer's room as well, um, and so they use stories from different writers. But they're the ones who are actually writing everything. And I think, 
you know, it, it's, it really has sort of a distinct cultural vision. Um, that parents episode that you're referencing is, yes, yeah, seeing things from their parents' perspective, um, you know, an older generation and an older... How you know, they struggle to come... Yeah, yeah, yeah it was how great. their kids, yeah. um, you know, take everything advantage and don't maybe respect where they came from, the religion <laughs> anymore, you know, and the so... One, yeah, the one father had to kill kill a chicken for dinner, this pet chicken to eat so the family could eat. Oh um, and even there's an episode in the second season called Religion and, it, and they do it brilliantly where it's Dev not understanding why he can't eat bacon because it's so delicious but they don't <laughs> eat pork in his, um, and it's just understanding why he can't and he's sort of like, well, I'm different. Maybe I view my religion this way and his parents are kind of like, that's fine, you know, but it's disrespectful to us. You know, we've taught you a certain way and we want you to feel like, you know, you, um, you know, have disrespect for us and for our beliefs, even if you don't believe in it, you know, now in your time. And so I, I, again, I really think they inspire discussion, but it, it sort of washes over you, you know, the story, you don't even realize you're maybe learning sort of these life lessons. Um, and it's due to the writing, you know, because they're really, really funny. Um, and there was a quote, even Alan Yang, he was sort of like, you know, when we write the show, we treat it like we're never going to do it again. So we really try to knock it out of the park each park, you know, kind of each and every time. But, um, but it's, again, brilliant, I think, in terms of their comedy style. And uh, and again, just working through issues like how to come out as gay in the black community, like, do you even think about that? You know, what the impact is like and how it's different from any other community. And um, and again, just kids coping with the next generation, especially as they become more secular. And how do you kind of keep, you know, in touch with your roots? And so um, I would recommend it for sure. I enjoyed it. And that's Master of None, mm-hmm. which is on Netflix. On Netflix in its second season. Yep. All right. Well, okay. Uh, Mark, can I ask you to wrap things up for us? Sure. Um, this week, a phrase came to me from a source that I respect and admire. It's, let's go home. My regularly subject of today, Rod Serling, knew it. He understood that phrase intimately, and actually, we all know it. It's something that's said or implied at the end of thousands of movies. Let's go home. It's that place of safety or light where the weather is clement, and we can sit on that porch and watch the world go by. It's the final stop for the writer, both in his or her work when we type fade out or in our lives when we finally put down the pen for the last time. How could it not be the most evocative phrase in the world? It implies so many wonderful things. Maybe it's a place in our childhood where we lived happily for a time. Perhaps it's that cabin by the lake like Serling had, where we go to recharge or to ruminate. Perhaps it's a blissful sleep after a long day or a long month or a long, long year. Maybe a nap or a beer with friends at a bar where everyone knows your name. We know it, we live it, and when we hear it in the movies, it moves us subconsciously. Let's go home. Thousands of movies or TV episodes incorporate it. It fills us with hope and the sense that there is a balance in the world where we see daily that none exists. But for that moment, we're willing to be fooled into the idea of justice, truth, love, or whatever the movie or TV show is selling. We're on board. It's a golden, sweet, perfectly balanced moment of inner truth that no matter how the world treats us, we can succeed. We can overcome somehow, some way. We can, just like the characters in the movie. Let's go home. In Serling's One for the Angels, an aging pitchman requests of death that he make one more pitch. He says he's never accomplished anything much in his life. And by the way, this was Serling's inner mental state. At the end of a long night where actor Ed Gwynn creates his greatest pitch, death realizes that he's been fooled. He didn't take the little girl who was Gwynn's neighbor before midnight, and now it's too late. So he has to take Gwynn instead by arrangement, which was exactly Gwynn's plan. Death. A most persuasive pitch, Mr. Bookman. An excellent pitch. It had to be to make me miss my appointment, Bookman. Yes, quite a pitch. Very effective. Best I've ever done. That's the kind of pitch I've always wanted to make. A big one. A pitch so big, so big, the sky would open up. Death. A pitch for the angels. Bookman. I guess. I guess it's time for me now, right? As per our agreement, he says, well, I'm ready to go. He points up there. Death nods. Up there, Mr. Bookman, you made it indeed. Bookman is still to die. That's the deal. But he smiles and says he's ready. No regrets. He's accomplished that one great thing he always wanted, that great pitch for the angels. He grabs his doodad case and with a huge knowing smile says, let's go, he tells death. I'm ready. Ready to go home, he means. A reward for his hard work, for accomplishing the impossible, the unthinkable, the unobtainable. In Serling's A Passage for Trumpet, a suicidal trumpet player is inspired by who he finds out as the angel Gabriel. Jack Klugman, the trumpet player, tells Gabriel at the end that he wants to go back. He's changed his mind. He's forgotten how wonderful life is. I want to go home, he says. And we really do understand that, the reward, the boon. It's a crown for defeating the enemy, for slaying dragons, for winning our true love, for finding self-knowledge, 
for destroying our egos and becoming better people. It's that magical place in movies that we want to go with our favorite characters after their terrible journeys. We hunger to walk with them into the sunlight, tired but happy. And it's, that, it's all in that one phrase, let's go home. Yes, let's always go home. for this week's show. Again, if you have questions for us, uh, call 919-SCRIPTS and leave uh, a voicemail. We'll play it on the show. If you have questions about scripts, films, etc. Or you can visit plotpoints.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.